This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I think I'll start off with an evolutionarily very strange photo. This is Heidi Klum, the supermodel with her four children. And this is an almost unique sort of photo in the mammalian kingdom. And why, why is it unique? You won't see a chimpanzee mother with four children under her care at any one time. A chimpanzee mother raises her offspring to independence before she has the next child. Um, same with gorillas, with orangutans, and pretty well most of all other um, primates. A mother can only have another child once the previous child is independent. But here is Heidi, and she's got four children, all of different ages, and all of them dependent for their well-being on parental care, maternal care. Now, raising four children at a time is hard work, and there's an interesting evolutionary question how human mothers are able to um, do this. But it creates um, sorts of interactions among siblings that you don't find elsewhere. I should point out that there are, of course, other mammals that produce multiple offspring at the same time. They produce a litter, but in those cases, all of those offspring are the same age. Now, the, the existence of multiple children, all dependent for, at the same time for maternal care, means that they tend to compete amongst each other for maternal care and attention. And when I look at photos like this, I always like to look, where are the hands? And so if you look at this picture, um, here is um, Heidi's right hand is holding her youngest child. Her other hand is holding the hand of her eldest daughter here. And she is sufficiently rich that she can afford another pair of hands to look after her two other children. So here's one of the hands holding this child. And then the second hand of the helper is sort of hidden behind her um, body. So raising children is hard work. Raising a child is not cost-free. And sometimes people challenge me about that, you know. But think about it. If raising children weren't costly, and natural selection acts to maximize lifetime reproductive success, if there were no cost of child raising, mothers would have evolved to produce an infinite number of offspring, which they clearly don't do. Offspring compete for maternal care and attention. That's if you're using your right hand to hold one child, you don't have the right hand available to grab another child when it's getting into um, danger. Now, there's another interesting thing about that um, photo, and this is that, um, as is well known, um, Heidi's eldest daughter has a different father from her other three children. And this genetically creates an interesting asymmetry. So all of these four children are related to each other maternally. Um, if you picked a gene in Heidi, it's got a one chance in two of being present in each of her offspring. These are all maternal half-sibs. So they're all related maternally, but the paternal genes of this child 
are necessarily absent from the three siblings there. So this child is unrelated for her paternal genome to Heidi's other three children. And this leaves evolutionarily to a conflict within the genomes of children over the extraction of um, care from mothers, which ultimately translates as costs of their care having impacts on their siblings who might be maternal half-sibs. So maternal and paternal genes of a child disagree over the value of half-siblings who share one parent but not both parents. And so here's the sort of uh, graph that you've seen before in earlier talks. I put fetus here, but I'm just referring to a child here. We're looking at effects on fitness of the child and effects on fitness of its siblings. And just dividing this space, there are some sorts of outcomes, some things that can happen that are of benefit to the child and to its siblings. There are some things that are of cost to a child and to its siblings. And then there is the zone of trade-offs where some action is benefiting one child at the cost to other children. That's the holding of one child in your hand, meaning that that hand is not available to look after other children. So these are the zones of a trade-off in parental care. And so just looking at what natural selection maximizes in this situation, so first of all I'm going to look at natural selection acting on genes of maternal origin in a child with respect to costs on maternal half-siblings, the offspring of other fathers. And so natural selection is predicted to maximize this sum here. This is the benefit to the child and this is the cost to the fitness of its um, siblings. The child values itself evolutionarily at twice the value of siblings because a gene in the child is definitely present in that child but has only got a 50% chance. This is a maternal gene of being present in siblings. So natural selection will favor a behavior when this sum is positive which is in this region of the phase space, what is called matrilineal inclusive fitness is increased. But for paternally derived genes in a, in a maternal half-sib, what's relevant is the effect on the fitness of the child itself because it is unrelated to its siblings. So as long as the benefit to the child is positive, natural selection will favor increasing demands on the mothers. So combining those two situations, we have regions where there is an absence of evolutionary conflict between genes of maternal and paternal origin. This is where they both benefit. This is where they both suffer a cost and natural selection would act against genes with these sort of effects. But then we have a zone of trade-off of conflict within the genome where genes of maternal origin would benefit by the mother allocating more resources to siblings, whereas genes of paternal origin would benefit from the child receiving more maternal care itself. This is where the cost-benefit ratio is sitting in between a half and zero. This is the zone of intragenomic conflict. And for the second half of the talk, I'm just going to look at some human genetic disorders where genes 
so-called imprinted genes, have an effect and these provide clues about the action of this evolutionary conflict during human evolution. Now, an imprinted gene is a gene that is expressed differently whether you get it from your mother or from your um, father. It has an imprint, a record of its past history, what sex of body it was in in the previous generation, and that affects what it does in the current generation. So paternally derived genes in offspring are predicted to favor greater demands on mothers than will maternally derived genes in offspring. And so here we will look at an example of a chromosome region on human chromosome 11 where there are some imprinted genes. Let's focus here. This is a gene called IGF2 for insulin-like growth factor 2. Here we're looking at the chromosome a child gets from its mother. And on this chromosome, I've got a red dot there. The IGF2 gene is not being expressed, whereas on the copy that the child gets from its father, the IGF2 gene is being expressed. IGF2 is a fetal growth enhancer. This is a gene that is promoting growth of the placenta and is increasing birth weight. And it's not being expressed when it comes from the mother, but being expressed when it comes from the father. Now, this is called imprinting because this isn't anything to do with the DNA sequence itself. In my body, the copy of IGF2 I got from my mother is silent, but if I pass that silent copy on to my children, it's going to be active in my children because they got it from their father. In this chromosome region, there is a second gene with the opposite pattern of imprinting, CDKN1C, this is a cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor. This is an inhibitor of progression through the cell cycle. So this is stopping cells dividing and growing larger. So this is an inhibitor of growth, and it shows the opposite pattern of imprinting. It's expressed off the maternal chromosome, so the gene coming from the mother is acting to reduce growth, whereas the gene copy coming from the father is silent. So in essence, we have a situation where simultaneously during fetal development, we have a paternal foot on the accelerator of growth here, of IGF2 being expressed from the paternal chromosome, promoting growth. The maternal foot is off the accelerator, but the maternal foot is on the brake, reducing growth, and the paternal foot in the child, in the same cells, is not applied to that brake, and normal fetal development is determined by the balance of paternal acceleration and maternal breaking. And so this internal conflict can be re revealed in rare genetic disorders where parts of this process go wrong. So I'll start off with, I'll look at Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. This is a fetal overgrowth syndrome, so these children are born rather large. I have a friend who had Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome as a child, and she's given me her baby photo to look at. Um, so here she is. She was about 13 pounds at birth. Um, typical of Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, she has macroglossia, which is just what medical people use to say. It's Latin for having a large tongue. I suspect evolutionarily this is the tongue muscle is the pump 
during breastfeeding, and so paternal genes are particularly involved in promoting the development of the tongue muscles. Now, what are the causes of this fetal overgrowth syndrome? In a number of cases, um, individuals turn out to have two paternal copies of this chromosome region. This is called paternal uniparental disomy. So in this case, they have two copies of IGF-2. They have two paternal feet on the accelerator and no maternal feet on the brake. So they have fetal overgrowth. It's also associated with a high risk of a number of childhood cancers. Some other people with the same diagnosis of Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome of fetal overgrowth have a mutation, an inactivating mutation, in the maternal copy of CDKN1C. So this is the break on fetal growth. So the maternal copy, which is normally expressed, is inactivated by a mutation. The paternal copy is inactivated as normally occurs. And so in this case, they've got a paternal foot on the accelerator of growth and no maternal foot on the brake. And this is associated with fetal overgrowth and a similar, similar clinical diagnosis, though apparently not with the increased risk of childhood cancers. Such a condition is interesting. If, um, if a male who had this mutation and had Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome passed the mutant gene on to his children, they would have normal development because they would get a normal gene from their mother and the mutant gene that is coming from the affected male um, would have been inactivated anyway. So this is a case where a mutation is having an effect when inherited from a parent of one sex, but not from a parent of the other. Silver-Russell syndrome is a intrauterine growth retardation syndrome. And so here I have a picture of two girls of the same age. This little girl here has Silver-Russell syndrome. It's associated with very low birth weights, not associated with catch-up growth. So if not treated, these individuals grow up to be very small adults. It's also associated with severe feeding difficulties as an infant. Some individuals with Silver-Russell syndrome have two maternal copies of this chromosome region. So now they have no paternal foot on the accelerator of growth and two maternal feet on the brake associated with intrauterine growth retardation and small birth weight. Other individuals have a loss of DNA methylation at what is called the imprinting control region 1 here. This leads to the inactivation of the paternal copy of IGF-2. So now they have no foot on the accelerator of growth and that's associated with intrauterine growth retardation. For the final part of the talk, I want to talk about a different pair of syndromes that are associated with a different cluster of imprinted genes. These reside on human chromosome 15, and here the imprinting is specific to the brain and doesn't occur in most other um, tissues. I won't go into the details of naming these genes, just to point out that there are some genes, like this one here, that are not expressed on the maternal chromosome, but are expressed on the paternal chromosome, and other genes with the opposite pattern of expression expressed on the maternal chromosome, but not on the paternal chromosome. Some interesting things in this region. 
Here is where the single nucleotide polymorphism that in European populations makes the difference between blue and brown eyes resides. And sitting here, a gene that I won't talk about, this gene, Macorin 3, so this is a gene that is only expressed when you get from your father, but not expressed from the mother. When children have a mutation in this paternally derived gene copy, recent work from Brazil said they have precocious puberty, that they go through puberty usually before age of 10 years. So this is suggesting that a paternally expressed gene on this chromosome is inhibiting pubertal progression, which raises some interesting evolutionary questions. Okay, so here is a young child with Prader-Willi syndrome. I'm going to focus on the childhood um, symptoms of Prader-Willi syndrome. These children, some of you might know, in studying in their second to third year of life, they go from being anorexic, having no appetite, to becoming hyperphagic, and they become massively obese. But I'm just going to be focusing on the symptoms that these children have in the immediate perinatal period. So this girl is showing the hypotonia of Prader-Willi syndrome. Most individuals with Prader-Willi syndrome have a deletion of the paternal copy of this chromosome. So they've only got maternally expressed genes coming from this region and no paternal copy. A few other people have two maternal copies of this region and they have Prader-Willi syndromes. So what this is showing is that Prader-Willi syndrome is caused by the absence of expression of genes that come from the father. Interestingly, in individuals with maternal uniparental disomy, this is one of the most penetrant causes of psychosis. Um, sitting down in this region of the region, this is a GABA receptor cluster, and there appears to be some sort of parent-of-origin effect occurring here that is predisposing these individuals to developing psychosis. So Prader-Willi syndrome is associated with the absence of expression of paternally derived genes, and therefore evolutionary, this leads to a prediction that Prader-Willi syndrome should exhibit an exaggeration of traits that reduce demands on mother. So this region contains paternal accelerators on offspring demands on mothers. We're taking away those paternal genes, and so you should see in the child reduced demands on the mother. So let's look at the neonatal phenotype in Prader-Willi syndrome. It's associated with low muscle tension, neonatal hypertonia, with a weak cry. These are low-maintenance children, and with poor suck. So these children have little to no interest in feeding, and they have very weak or non-existing suckling reflexes. Usually they have to have a tube put into the stomach, gavage feeding, to give them adequate nutrition. They show excessive sleepiness. Um, the child is put to bed and it stays asleep. So this suggests that paternal genes that are absent in Prader-Willi syndrome promote suckling and they also promote wakefulness. So in their absence, you have a child that doesn't suckle and a child that sleeps through the night. And I have suggested that evolutionarily, paternal genes are promoting more intense suckling and also night waking in children, in, in babies, as a way of essentially exhausting mothers and delaying her return to fertility, 
delaying the conception of a younger sibling who will compete for maternal um, care and attention. Interestingly, deletions of precisely the same chromosome region cause a completely different syndrome. This is a boy with Angelman syndrome. The majority of cases, 70% of cases of Angelman syndrome have a deletion of the same chromosome region, but in this case it's a deletion of the maternal chromosome, so they only have a paternal copy of this region. So now we would expect an exaggeration of um, behaviours that increase costs to, to mothers. We know of a couple of cases of women with Prader-Willi syndrome who had a deletion of their paternal chromosome that were fertile and had a child and passed the deletion on to their children. Their child got it from their mother, so the child of a Prader-Willi syndrome woman has Angelman syndrome. Some other individuals with Prader-Willi syndrome have been activating mutations in this gene here, UBE3A, which is normally expressed only on the maternal chromosome. So now the maternal copy is inactivated by mutation and the paternal copy is inactivated by genomic imprinting. And this suggests that Angerman syndrome, most of the symptoms are caused by the absence of expression of the maternally derived copy of this gene, UBE3A. So Angerman syndrome is predicted to exaggerate traits that increase offspring demands on mothers. And I'll just look at some of the um, symptoms of Angerman syndrome. So Angerman syndrome is associated with uncoordinated suck and swallow, but these children do not need to be gavage fed. It's as if there's hyperactivity in the suckling reflex. They get adequate nutrition so they don't show failure to thrive. They have adequate nutrition, as I've mentioned. They are hypertonic rather than hypotonic. They have ataxia, hyperactivity, particularly tiring for parents. They have excessive wakefulness as babies. I know of clinical reports of babies who were awake 21 hours out of 24. Parents are advised to get some sleep, sometimes to put the child in a darkened room and close the door. Angerman syndrome is associated with happy affect, the laughing, smiling child you saw in the previous picture. This is particular in interactions with potential caregivers, and it's associated with frequent laughter. These are happy, smiling children. Curiously, um, this is associated with a complete absence of the development of speech or even of sign language. So these children have... Um, have some degree of cognitive delay, but the absence of speech seems to be out of proportion to the cognitive problems. It seems to be a specific deficit in this imprinted disorder. The suggestion is that children with Angerman syndrome exhibit exaggerated attachment behaviours that normally engage maternal attention and elicit maternal care. This is the laughing, smiling baby that the mother wants to put attention, give attention to. And I'll finish with another photo and just look at the hands in the photo. So here we have mum holding on to the hands of two children and this child misses out and doesn't get a maternal hand. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.